0: Let's pray. Oh, great God of highest heaven, we thank you that you have condescended to us in the person of your son, and through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the unleashing of your spirit upon us, you have brought us into fellowship and relationship with you. And so, God, we thank you that you've opened up our eyes you've caused us to see your goodness and your grace and that you have purposed for us great things in Christ. Help us to believe this, to trust in it, and to not trust our own wisdom, we pray. God, be with us now as we look at your scriptures. Speak to us through your word. May the things that are said here that I say that you would say uh, through your scriptures be taken up by your spirit and planted deep in our hearts. Give us hearts like the good soil, we pray, able to receive the word and bear fruit. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be with you all. And uh, we're kicking off today our sermon series on the life of David. We had a really fabulous banner, but we don't have the fabulous banner today. We also, uh, in July, we have our our kids with us, uh, family service. So kids, glad to have you here. I was especially disappointed in the screens going down because we were going to show cartoons for the kids during the sermon, just to kind of keep you guys occupied, but alas, we don't have that today, so I'm sorry for that. You'll have to just listen to the sermon today, kids, sorry. Uh, but we're starting the sermon series uh, this, uh, today, running through July. I'll be uh, preaching this morning, and then uh, Pastor Eric, Pastor Joey, Pastor Josh, and Zach Wagner uh, also involved in our ministries here, we'll be preaching uh, through the remainder of July, all looking at the life of David. Sermon series is titled After God's Own Heart Faith for Every Circumstance. And we're going to be looking at various episodes in the life of David where he demonstrated faith. And David, if you know the story of David, faced betrayal, he faced rejection, he faced failure of his own making all the sorts of things that you and I have faced or will face in our lives. And the Scriptures speak of David, summing up his life, all of that, as a man after God's own heart, and in doing so, present him to us as a model for us to emulate. So that's going to be the focus of our sermon series, looking at uh, David, with a view to showing how he lived out his faith in the midst of difficult circumstances, with a view to us living out our faith in the midst of life's circumstances as well. Well, our passage that we're going to uh, use to kick off our time together is actually from the book of Acts in the New Testament. Chapter 13, verses 16 through 23, you can make your way there. Acts 13, 16 through 23, the Apostle Paul is preaching about the history of God's people. And as he preaches about the history of God's people and the coming of Jesus in the midst of that history, he references the life of David. And so we're going to look at that as kind of a launching place to get us going, not only for our sermon today, but also for our sermon series. So let's stand together, Acts 16 or 13. rather. Acts thirteen sixteen through 23. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we have here, in the words of the Apostle Paul, he's introducing his fellow countrymen to. Who Jesus is, they don't have not heard of Jesus. They're not. They weren't alive, living in the area where Jesus' ministry was. And as he begins to talk about Jesus, he sets the context by bringing in the story of David. And if you've grown up in uh, Christianity, perhaps you grew up going to church. Uh, you're familiar with the story of David, but I don't presume that everybody here uh, has. Maybe there's some of you here who are not Christians or haven't been to church much. And so, if that's your case, uh, you need not uh, worry that you don't know much about David. Let me give you uh, just a quick one minute primer to get you up to speed on who David is. You can start your stopwatch now. Okay, so David was the first great king of Israel, which was God's people. He was technically the second king, as we've just read, but he was the first great king. And he and his sons sat on the throne in Jerusalem from about 1040 BC until the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. So nearly a 500 year dynasty. And the story of David's life spans, it's recounted in nearly three entire books of the Bible. So most importantly, though, about David and why he becomes such a prominent figure in the Bible is that it was prophesied that from David's line would come the long-promised Jewish Messiah, that would be the great son of David. Now, Christians, of course, believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies, which is why you may have heard of Jesus referred to at times, perhaps in Christmas carols and elsewhere, as the son of David. So David occupies a key place in the biblical storyline, both as an example of devotion to God, the life he lived as a man after God's own heart, and then also as a key pivot point in the Bible's narrative, because it is through David and his line that the Messiah Jesus eventually comes. So that's who David is and why we're focusing our attention on him in this sermon series. As I've been tasked with launching the sermon series, it seems best to begin our study of the life of David at the beginning. And as I've just mentioned, David was not the first king of Israel. The people of God had been led by judges who were not technically kings. They came to positions of power for seasons and for moments uh, to handle crises, but then they would retire back, as it were, into private life. But they didn't have a permanent king. And so the people of God came to the present judge, who was Samuel, and said, give us a king. We want a king. So God appointed for the nation of Israel a king. And the first king that he appointed was Saul. And David's life, David's life is bound up in the story of Saul's life. And indeed, we see that David ascended to the kingship largely because Saul failed as king. The life of David then is helpfully understood against the backdrop of the life of Saul. In many respects, the scriptures present to us the juxtaposition of the life of David and the life of Saul. Saul is the un-David. He is everything that David was not, and that David then came, became. So what we see in the lives of these two men then are men who are repeatedly confronted throughout the the whole of their lives and their reigns with the choice to follow after their own hearts or to follow after God's heart. And the choices they make not only determine the course of their lives, but in a certain irony determine whether or not they achieve their heart's desire. So the question that I want us to be thinking about this morning as a question that Is an important question as we begin not only our study of the life of David, but even more importantly, the beginning of David's reign. Is this question How do we find our heart's desire? How do we find our heart's desire? Each of us comes in here this morning with things in particular that we desire. And your thing might look different than my thing might look different than her thing. But each of us has a thing or things that we desire in our heart of hearts. And it's a timeless question. How do we find our heart's desire? It's a timeless question that has as much relevance for David and Saul as it has for us. And what we're going to see, ironically, in looking at the lives of David and Saul, is that we don't find our heart's desire by following after our heart's desire, so toward this end, we're going to look at three vignettes, two from the life of Saul and the third from the life of David. These are all coming out of First Samuel. So if you want to turn in your Bible back to First Samuel, we're going to read portions of each of these three vignettes, but we won't take time to read all of them. But turn there back in your Bible. The first one is First Samuel 13. But looking at three vignettes, two from the life of Saul and then one from the life of David, In the first vignette, Saul loses his dynasty. In the second, he loses his kingship. And in the third, David gains the crown. So we're looking at the the descent of Saul and the ascendancy of David as he moves into uh, his kingship. And we're going to look at all three of these vignettes. And then we're going to see what principle we can extract from them with respect to this question about how it is that we find our heart's desire. Okay, so three vignettes in the life of Saul leading into the life of David. The first is found in 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 15, so I'm going to just... Tell the story here. So, if you like to listen to stories, we've got some stories to tell this morning. But I'm going to tell the story here and then we'll focus in on verses 13 through 15. But Saul, as we've just mentioned, has been appointed the first king of Israel. And one of the things that a king has to do fairly quickly is to establish a military. Otherwise, he doesn't have the power to execute his kingship or hold on to it in the face of opponents. And so he has uh, been appointed a king and has very quickly found himself at war with the Philistines. The Philistines were the perennial enemies of the Israelites. They were more militarily advanced, and they lived down along the coast, and they were the overlords of the area. And so the Israelites were under the thumb and the oppression and weight of the Philistines. So when Saul becomes king, it's in many respects an act of war against the Philistines, that the Israelites would appoint for themselves a king to rule themselves. Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. He's the heir apparent to the new dynasty that Saul has established with his kingship. Jonathan is a bold young man. He goes out and he attacks a Philistine outpost and he overthrows it and destroys it. So the Philistines show up in force to retaliate and to suppress the Israelites, teach them a lesson that they're still in charge. Saul musters his forces, but this is his first go around with the Philistines and his troops are very scared. We read in 1 Samuel 13 that many of the the people of Israel are are going into hiding. They're hiding in caves, they're hiding in cisterns, they're hiding in wells, they're hiding in valleys. They're trying to get away. Even some of the the Israelites have fled out of the land of of Israel and have moved across the Jordan River and they're out of the Philistine territory. They're scared. And so Saul is with his army, and he is preparing for battle against the Philistines, who are uh, far advanced beyond him militarily. And Samuel is appointed to come in seven days and to offer sacrifices that would invoke God's favor so, that, so both Saul and his army know that they're not really a match for the Philistines in their own strength and that they need God's favor if they are to be victorious Samuel is the last of the judges, and he's the one that appointed Saul to be king. He's the great priest who offers sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And so Samuel is to come on day seven and offer the sacrifices. So the battles are lines are arrayed. Saul has his army. But Samuel is late to the sacrifice. We don't know how late, maybe a day or two begins to pass. But Saul's army begins to get nervous and scared. And now some of his army are beginning to desert him and to flee away. Saul panics and he offers the sacrifice himself. He knows that he should not have done this, but he offers the sacrifice himself figuring that if Samuel isn't here, then I need to do it. And if we wait much longer for Samuel, I'm going to lose my troops and potentially lose my kingship and life. So we pick up in 13 uh, 13 through 15, because as soon as Saul has finished offering the sacrifices, who shows up, of course, but Samuel. And so after Samuel shows up, he says this to Saul in verse 13. You have done foolishly you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here was Saul, he panics, he offers the sacrifices and disobedience to God, and Samuel comes and delivers to him the message that he has lost the opportunity for a dynasty. He's been disobedient. God is not going to give him an enduring reign, but God will raise up another king after his own heart, be a prince in Israel who will do what God has commanded. And of course, this is a reference now, the first allusion that we have in the Scriptures to David and his kingdom that will come. We haven't met David yet, we're going to meet him in a moment, but we've met him in a prophecy that he is to come. David then will be what Saul is not. David will be one who obeys the commands of the Lord. Now it's probably good to pause here for a moment and clarify this expression, man after God's own heart. This is the first place we see it made of reference to David, even though we don't have David's name. In the English, we think of the term heart primarily with respect to affections, things that we like. So I might say in this idiom, a man after God's own heart, or to be a man after someone else's own heart, It would be a reference that we like the same thing. So we go into the ice cream shop together, you order Rocky Road, I like Rocky Road, and I say, you're a man after my own heart because you like Rocky Road ice cream. But that's not exactly, that's close, but it's not exactly what this idiom means in Hebrew because Hebrew, the term heart, is a bigger term. In English, it's limited to more to our affections. But in Hebrew, it's not just limited to affections, though it does include that, but it's more broadly uh, includes will or counsel or purpose. So to be a man after God's own heart or a person after God's own heart doesn't mean that you just like the things that God likes, but it means that your purpose, your counsel, your will is conformed to God's purpose, God's counsel, and God's will. This is why when God rebukes Saul he says that I will raise up a man after my own heart who will do what I have commanded him. Right? He's not just going to like what I like. He's going to actually follow through in obedience. So to be a man after God's own heart is to is to follow after God's desires and his purposes. It's an act of obedience. All right, so Saul still has the kingdom. And he goes on to wage successful wars, not only against the Philistines, which he does triumph against here immediately, but against Israel's other enemies as well. But he's lost the chance of a dynasty, which is the heart's desire of every king. He's thrown that away out of fear. That takes us to our next vignette, because in 1 Samuel 15, just a few chapters ahead, we're going to see that he loses his throne. As we've seen, in spite of his initial stumble, he goes on to wage very successful wars against not only the Philistines, but all the opposing powers that are around Israel that have been kind of plaguing Israel. And he's victorious. He's given uh, victory by God. And then God appoints Saul to a very specific task. He's to wage war against the Amalekites, who are ancient enemies of the people of Israel all the way back 450 years earlier in the days of Moses. But unlike his previous battles, he's to devote all of the spoil from this battle to destruction. He's to destroy all the spoil, offer it up, as it were, in terms of sacrifice to God. Well, Saul goes to battle. He defeats the Amalekites, but he lets the people take the best of the cattle and the livestock. And again, Samuel shows up. Saul approaches Samuel, sees him coming, and says, greetings and blessings. See, I have done everything that the Lord commanded of me. And Samuel says, well, then what's this sound of bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ear and this lowing of oxen? And Saul begins to make his excuses. Oh, no, no, I I did everything you asked. And the, the people have taken the livestock to offer sacrifices to God. I mean, isn't that great? See, like God didn't even think of that. Like, I've done even one better. I've kind of gone above and beyond because we're going to offer these to sacrifices. And Samuel says, stop. You haven't obeyed. Don't talk anymore. The Lord didn't want sacrifices. He wanted obedience. And Samuel goes on to say that to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to God's commandment is worth more to him than all the fat of rams offered on the altar. Rebukes. Saul, And then the truth, the truth comes out in 1524. Look what what Saul says to Samuel when he's rebuked. Saul says to Samuel in 1524, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Listen to this. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. What was he afraid of? Well, he was afraid because the way that a king pays his soldiers in the ancient world was through the spoils that is taken in the victory. So essentially what God had told Saul to do was to take the soldier's paycheck and burn it up. And Saul was not confident that he'd be able to retain the loyalty of his people if he had asked them to burn up, what they would have seemed in their mind was rightfully theirs after the work that they had done in waging war on Saul's behalf. And so Saul tried to twist it around and to give it a popular good spin by saying, well, this is, they're going to be used for offering of sacrifice to God. But that wasn't what really was in his heart. It wasn't to honor God that Saul was, was, was preserved the animals from destruction. It was to honor himself because he was afraid of losing his kingdom. He was afraid of his army revolting against him. The fear that's latent all in Saul's life, we continue to see it because Samuel says that he will lose his kingdom now, that the Lord has rejected Saul from being king. And as Samuel turns to go, Saul reaches out and clutches after him and tears off part of his robe and and Samuel says to Saul, In the same way that you've torn my robe, God will tear from you the kingdom. Saul still driven by fear. Samuel's an important person. Samuel is the one that has appointed Saul to be king. He's feared by the people, and Saul is afraid that if Samuel turns against him, he might lose his kingdom. So he He begs Samuel to go back with him to the people so that they can stand in public solidarity and Samuel can give blessing to Saul. And even then, in his confession of his sin, he's still trying to hold on to his kingdom. He wants Samuel to bless him in the eyes of the people so that he can receive the blessing of what Samuel's power represents. So, Saul here has not only forfeited his dynasty. He has now lost his throne. God has set out to find someone else to replace him as king. His days are numbered. This leads to our third vignette where finally David, who we have seen in prophecy, now enters the scene in chapter 16. With Saul disqualified, God sends Samuel to appoint a new king. He is sent to Bethlehem to anoint one from among the sons of Jesse. And when Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, the elders of the city are scared because they know there's been a falling out between Saul and Samuel. And they're not sure if Samuel's presence is going to invite conflict. So they ask him, do you come in peace? And he says, yes, I come peaceably to offer sacrifices. And he, and he invites to the sacrifice Jesse and David and Jesse and his sons because God has told him that one of the sons is going to be appointed the king. So we pick up in Sixteen six, where we read the account of the sons of Jesse coming before Samuel. And when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was the oldest. But the Lord had said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, "'Neither has the Lord chosen this one.' Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, "'Neither has the Lord chosen this one.' And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, "'The Lord has not chosen these.' Then Samuel said to Jesse, "'Are these all of your sons? Are they all here?' And he said, "'There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep.' And Samuel said to Jesse, "'Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes.' And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So Saul has been rejected as king. Samuel has been sent to find a new king. And we read that that the king that has been found is the most unlikely of all the kings of all the sons that Jesse has brought forward. Saul, when he was picked, was noted in Scripture for being head and shoulders literally above his fellow countrymen. He was tall. He was powerfully built. He was everything that the people wanted in a king. But now God has chosen another king, the youngest son of a small clan in a small city of Bethlehem. And we don't know exactly what it was about David from this passage that tells us why it is that God chose David, except to say that God isn't looking on the outside, though apparently David has a pretty decent outside (laughs) from what we can see here in the text. But God isn't looking on the outside the way that the world looks, but God is looking on the inside. He's looking at the heart. There's something about David's heart that causes God to pick him. Of course, we know what it is about David's heart from what was prophesied about what was not in Saul's heart, that David is a man after God's own heart. And God saw in David a man who would do his will, The very thing that Saul had neglected to do. God saw in David a man who would not follow after his own heart, but would follow after God's heart. And here's where we encounter the deep irony that marks the lives of David and Saul. Saul, more than anything, sought to preserve for himself the kingship, it was his highest priority to preserve for himself his kingship, his heart's desire, and in so doing, he lost it. Where David, more than anything else, sought to do God's will, and in doing so, gained the throne he was not even seeking. And there is a rich biblical lesson to be learned in the example of these two men. Saul followed his own heart's desire, and in the end, lost the very thing he treasured. The very actions he took to preserve his throne were the actions that caused it to be taken from his grasp. Saul, when he was faced with the moment of sacrifice, that choice, he offered the sacrifices in disobedience because he was afraid of losing his throne. He was afraid of losing his dynasty. And he lost it because of the very thing that he did because he was driven by fear. And he, when he was faced with the call to, to destroy all of the cattle and the livestock and the spoil and he spared them, he tried to cloak his, his fear and obedience and devotion to God. But Samuel unmasks it and shows it what it was that in his effort to spare the livestock, He, in turn, loses the very thing that he is afraid of losing. In his singular pursuit of his heart's desire, he lost the very thing he desired above all. But David followed not his own heart, but God's heart, and in the end gained more than he ever could have hoped for. David was not in the field seeking glory. He was in the field seeking God. And God found him and raised him up. And the key to gaining our heart's desire is not, as the world tells us, to follow our heart's desire. The key to gaining our heart's desire is to align ourselves with God's own heart, to make his counsel and his purposes our own. So what is your heart's desire this morning? What is it that you dream about? What keeps you up at night's? What do you fear losing? What are you clinging to like Saul clung to his kingdom? Each of us has different ways of answering that question. Perhaps it requires some self reflection. Where are you tempted to be like Saul with his kingdom? Is it a career? Perhaps a ministry vision that you have in mind that you'd love to see brought to fruition. Perhaps it's a desire to be well-liked at school or among your peers. Perhaps it's a spouse or children. All good things, just like a kingdom was a good thing that God had given to Saul. But chasing after your heart's desire will not lead you to the thing that you seek, the lives of David and Saul are living examples of Jesus' teaching, that the one who would seek to save his life must lose it, and the one who loses his life will find it. That We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if we would have the whole world added to us as well. But how... Often, we, in our own limited, truncated wisdom, try to preserve our lives and the things we hold most dear. And yet, like a Greek tragedy, our very actions lead to the loss of these things. We do not gain our lives by making them the center of all we do. We gain our lives by making God the center of all that we are and do. Our best efforts, our deepest resources... Our most adept gifts cannot preserve our lives or the things that we hold dear. We must abandon ourselves and all that we hold dear to God. We must, as it were, lay our Isaac on the altar. We must walk into the fiery furnace. We must go down into the lion's den, all in faith that God will not abandon us if we abandon ourselves to him. To follow after God's own heart is to follow Christ down into the shadowed valley of the cross. It is to kneel with him in the darkness of the garden and to pray as he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. To obey God, to follow him above all else, to fix our hearts on him with the singular purpose of making his purposes our own. This is the path of life and of exaltation. So what is it that you are tempted to hold on to? What situations are you trying to muscle through to victory by your own resources and power? What would it look like to let go, to trust that God can in his own time and in his own way bestow more blessing upon you and all that you cherish beyond your wildest dreams or imaginations? Christian, be comforted this morning, knowing that God loves you, and he has pledged himself to us through his Son, who more than anyone else shows us that God honors those who entrust themselves to him. Surrender your heart's desire, your kingdom, as it were, to him, and wait and watch in faith. He will not fail you. Though he comes late to the sacrifice, he will show up. Though it seems that you won't have the resources to pay your troops, he will provide the resources. Don't take the expedient route of fear. Surrender the thing that you hold dear to him, your heart's desire, and trust that he will take care of it and preserve it better than you ever could. In a moment, we approach the table to celebrate God's covenant promise to us in Christ. Let us let the bread and the cup remind us in the person of Christ that he will not let us fall, that he will guard what we have entrusted to him so that we need not cling and grasp and ultimately lose the things that we hold most dear.